0: The following content is provided under a Creative Commons license. Your support will help MIT OpenCourseWare continue to offer high quality educational resources for free. To make a donation or view additional materials from hundreds of MIT courses, visit MIT OpenCourseWare at ocw.mit.edu. Today, what we're going to do is uh, is we're going to finish off our discussion about oscillators. Uh, in particular, we're going to talk about alternative designs for oscillators. So rather than having uh, these loops that are purely composed of negative, uh, negative interactions and negative feedback, uh, instead we're going to talk about cases where you have both positive and negative interactions. All right. So in using these, uh, this kind of combined network structure, you can generate what are known as relaxation oscillators, which uh, have uh, some, really, uh, some wonderful properties. In particular, you can get uh, more robust oscillations relative to the parameters. But also, you can, uh, the, the oscillations become tunable, i.e. you can change the frequency without compromising, for example, the amplitude of the oscillations. Right? So for uh, many both uh, natural and synthetic oscillators, these, these so-called synthetic oscillators are perhaps uh, the way to go. Right? Uh, then we're going to transition to more of the global structure of, uh, of some of these, uh, these networks in the context of transcription networks within, uh, within cells. And, and discuss this paper that you guys just read, the Barbasi paper, which is uh, one of the world's most cited papers, I think. All right. and, um, and, then, and, then, uh, and then after thinking about the, this global structure of how you might be able to generate these so-called power law structures, uh, we're going to look a little bit more detail is that, uh, to try to understand something about these network motifs. We've already talked about them a little bit in the context of uh, auto-regulatory loops but now uh, we will talk about them in, in, in a little a little bit more generality in particular this context in the context of feed forward loops. Okay. And then uh, and then on Thursday we will get into you know some of the the possible beneficial features of feed forward loops. On Thursday we talked about about the repressor, right? So if you have x inhibiting y inhibiting z coming back and inhibiting x, that uh, this thing can is, you know it's reasonable to expect that it might generate oscillations. right? Uh, and indeed, in in the Elowitz paper that we read, uh, such a, such a synthetic circuit did indeed uh, generate oscillations, but uh, there were perhaps a few problems there. Right. So one is that only about 40% of the cells actually oscillated. Uh, right? uh, who knows why not? All right. But also there were there were other problems that the the oscillations seemed rather noisy. There was relatively rapid uh, uh, kind of desynchronization. Uh, Moreover, if you, if you go and you, you ask, well, is it possible, or how easy would it be to change the period of the oscillations just by changing something like the degradation rate, what you'll find is that uh, the oscillations are not very tunable. Okay. So so I'll say the period, uh, or the frequency, is not very tunable. Okay. And indeed, this is a general feature of oscill- oscillatory networks that that have purely uh, negative uh, interactions, right? So we talked about a couple of these cases. So, for example, you can get oscillations just with negative autoregulation. And what what is it that's necessary? High. What's that? High coordination. High coordination. You mean? You, you, oh, your cooperativity and the repression, right? So so that I think is necessary, but is it is it going to be is it sufficient? I mean, even in this case where I just have, let's say that I, I say, OK, x dot the rate of production, if this thing is just as a function of x, the sharpest it could be, right? This is kind of infinite cooperativity, so it's maximal expression. Then when you get above some x critical, all of a sudden you fully repress. OK. If I just have this be the formula, do you guys understand what I'm referring to here? Right? Would this generate, uh, would this generate oscillations? So it actually doesn't. Right? So if in the simple equation where we, if we have x dot is equal to this function, so I guess this is a theta. I want to make sure I get this. x less than x critical, that's what, that's what this means. right? So with some rate beta minus some alpha x. Does this thing oscillate? No. And we had a simple argument for why it did not oscillate as well. Yes, All right. We can yell it out. Somebody, somebody that was, you know, I'm sure somebody was here uh, on Thursday. Um. Value. That's right. The t- yeah. So this is just this is a single. This is just an x dot. There's no x double dot, right? So that means the derivative of x is single value as a function of x. That means that we can't get anything that looks any any oscillation here, right? And then we remember we analyzed this model where we. Explicitly included the mRNA, right? So then we just had that X comes, and what it does is it represses produ- expression of this mRNA for X, and then this mRNA comes back and makes X, right? And uh, in this model, was this sufficient? Did this give oscillations? No, right? So this also here there was no oscillations. Again here there were no oscillations, but I did tell you that there was something that that you could do something more to get oscillations just with a single protein repressing itself. All right So yeah, so you need more delays, all right? So if, if you add delays, then it's possible to get um, to get oscillations. Okay. All right, so those delays uh, could be in the form of having a model where you explicitly take into account that uh, that first the mRNA is made and then, that goes, and then you translate that to make some monomer. And then the monomer has to maybe fold. And then the folded protein maybe has to dimerize in order to do repression. Right, so if you have a more detailed mechanistic model that includes all these steps that kind of introduces some sort of delay, that, can, that in principle can lead to oscillations in such a circuit. Or if you want to, you could just explicitly put in a delay. right? So you could say that x dot, instead of being a function of x, right? instead what you can do is you can say, all right, well, it's actually a function of X at some time, uh, t minus tau. All right, so instead of having the rate of production of x be a function of x at that moment of time, instead it could be a function of x at some previous time, doing that that's a very explicit form of delay. And that can also be used to generate oscillations in a simple negative autoregulatory loop. Okay. Alright, so these are all different kind of approaches for uh, for encoding or encoding delays into uh into uh the into a model and 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 various approaches will give you oscillations. Okay. Yes.
1: Just a question for the resonator, the yep. period is not tunable. It's because the MRNA lifetime is very difficult
0: to All right, so when 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 we say yeah, in so model, in the model you can just Yes, that's right. So in the model you can in principle tune it. So what, what I mean when I say this is that um, in this class of models. So you can also have, instead of this repressilator with three, you can have the so-called pentilator, where you have five proteins and each is repressing itself, right? So they're, they're, these are all have you know have similar features. They all have like these odd numbers of proteins going around and repressing one another, right? And so you can write down the model with seven if you want, right? uh, But in all these in all these cases, um, there it's it's not tunable. What we mean and what we mean by that is that if you when you tune the uh, when you when you tune the frequency. You, in general, uh, lose uh, the amplitude of the oscillation. So the amplitude will go down. There's, uh, I think, a very nice uh, paper uh, that was written in 2008 on this topic, uh, written by Jim Farrell at Stanford. All right, so I just want to mention this. Okay, so it's um, Farrell at Stanford. Uh, This is a paper in Science, 2008. And uh, you know, and it's called uh, robust, tunable biological oscillations from interlinked, interlinked positive and negative feedback loops. Right? It's a nice title, right? I like titles that say something, right? So it's a, it's sort of an ultimate short version of an abstract, right? If you can, if you can do it, I recommend it. Incidentally, in graduate school, I once wrote a paper with four words, short words: DNA overwinds when stretched. All right? Nice statement. Okay, you may or may not actually know what I mean by that. But you know it's a nice short title. It's a statement, all right, So um, I encourage you to to think about that when you're writing your papers. Okay. All right. So so Jim Farrell he he wrote the, he wrote this paper where he said all right, well you know oscillations are really important. All right. You're thinking about context of heart rhythms or cell cycle or this or that. All right, so oscillations are important. But if you go and you look at uh, the the circuits that are generating oscillations in biology they often have so-called interlinked positive and negative feedback loops. Right, so there are many cases where um, you have some x that actually have, is, is positively it's kind of activating itself. Right? And this is very much something that will not lead to oscillations on its own. Right, It might be bistable, which is interesting, but it, not oscillations on its own. But then there's, there's also maybe a negative feedback loop through Another, another protein. And the idea is that this one somehow operates, uh, this one's fast, and this one's slow. All right, and the key feature of these relaxation oscillators is that there are two time scales. Okay. And it's the, it's the slow time scale that specifies the, the period of the oscillation. And this fast one kind of locks the system into these alternative states, right? So you kind of you and this helps maintain the amplitude because it's it has this nature of being bistable, right? So it's on or off. Okay. So this helps you maintain amplitude. All right. So this is kind of in charge of amplitude. And this one over here is in charge of the period. Okay. So what you can imagine that by changing this time scale, you can change the period of the oscillation, whereas this loop allows you to maintain, uh, maintain the amplitude. Okay? And what, uh, what Jim's group did computationally in this paper is uh, they analyzed uh, many different circuit designs that can lead to oscillations. And they showed that for the, the, loop, the loops that are made of purely negative interactions like this, if you, change, if you change a parameter in order to change the period, you'll also, in general, make the, the amplitude of the oscillations will uh, drop dramatically. Right, so, that, that's, so that's the sense in which they're not tunable. Whereas if you have this kind of design, you can actually uh, tune over, in some cases, a very wide range, uh, but maintain the amplitude of the oscillation. Okay? And in addition to being tunable, these things also end up being robust in various ways. Right? That The oscillation uh, ma- is maintained subject to various kinds of, uh, if, you, if you twiddle with the parameters, you, know, you double this, you have that, you can still get nice oscillations here. Whereas um, in, in those designs, you tend to you tend to lose the oscillations more easily, right? So they claim that based on that, that these might be more evolvable. Okay. So even in cases where you don't need to tune the period, maybe you still end up evolving towards this design just because it's robust to uh, stochastic fluctuations and the concentrations of things. But also, it might be easier to evolve these sorts of um, these sorts of oscillations. Okay. Um, are there any questions about the the kind of intuition behind this for now? There's there's uh, a nice kind of circuit analogy that people often talk about in the context of um, of this. Sorry. Right. So if you imagine you have some battery with some voltage V. Well, well, say we'll say V battery. All right. Some capacitor over here. All right. But over here you have something that. Uh, will uh, spark at some voltage, some v, VT, You get a you get a spark. All right. Now the question is, well, um, what happens over time if V threshold is less than V battery? Okay. So if, oh know. we maybe should have a resistor in here. For so if V threshold is less less than V battery. Then um, this can generate nice. Um, nice oscillations in the voltage say across the capacitor as a function of time that are tunable right because if you plot as a function of time this is the voltage across the capacitor where up here we might have the v of the battery here we might have v v threshold okay now in the absence of this thing that's going to short periodically we're just going to charge up the capacitor. Right. So in principle, there's gonna be this standard RC time constant coming up to here, right? But instead of before we get there, we get the spark, right? So then we get we discharge across here and then we this drops, right? So you get something that looks like this. Right. Now you can imagine by changing for example the resistor, you can change the the rate that this thing, the capacitor will charge up. Right? But the amplitude of the oscillations stay constant because that's set by uh, the voltage threshold across this, um, uh, where, it, where it shorts. Okay? All right, so this is, uh, and this is capturing this uh, dynamic of the separation of time scales. right? So there's a slow time scale, which is this RC time constant. And then there's the rapid time scale that is where, where this shorts off. Uh, okay? And so you can imagine that this is an example of. Uh, an oscillatory signal that we can we can tune the frequency without sacrificing the amplitude. Right. Um, right so what we what we've said so far is that uh, you know there, there are engineering analogs to these sorts of relaxation oscillators. We can model various synthetic circuits, or we can look at natural uh, at natural oscillatory networks in order to get a sense of what's going on. Right. But of course. Uh, a major goal of this kind of system synthetic approach to uh, to the field is that you know if if all this stuff is really true we should be able to build it right and and there's a very nice demonstration of this also in 2008 by Jeff Hasty's group all right so Jeff Hasty uh, was uh, was actually trained as a high energy theorist uh, and then I think it was during his postdoc maybe switched into uh, experimental biology went and did his uh, postdoc, I think, with uh, with Jim Collins, and then uh, and then eventually now has his own group doing systems synthetic biology. All right. so in, in this paper, it was a it was a Nature paper in two thousand eight. Um, it's called again a fast, robust, and tunable synthetic gene oscillator. All right, it's a nice statement. It tells you what he's about to do. All right, but um, the data here. Uh, so this is again. Um, it's, it's using these ba- this basic insight of uh, having both interlinked positive and negative feedback loops. In E. coli, he demonstrated that, uh, that he can get really beautiful oscillations in essentially all the cells and that they're tunable inter- in period o- by a factor of 3 or 4 or so, right? so by a, f- by a fair amount. And indeed, uh, as, as fast as 13 minutes, the, the oscillatory period, right? which is pretty nice, right? Um, so I encourage you to, to, to check out this paper. Uh, this paper was, um, was also an example of uh, how it was, in principle, possible to get oscillations just uh, by doing negative autoregulation. All right, so this was a case where they, they designed a gene network that, would, uh, that they could tune and had this wonderful property. But then after they did that, they noticed that in their model, at least, they could get Oscillations in some parameter regime just by having a negative auto regulatory loop, but that, and as a result of all these uh, intermediate processes of protein maturation and so forth, and they went and they constructed that network and they showed that that could also oscillate. Right, so again, this is an example of the interplay between uh, modeling, experiment theory, modeling and, and Jeff Hasty has gone on to, to write uh, another uh, several really beautiful papers uh, looking at, at these sorts of oscillations, looking at. How you can get um, synchronization of oscillators, and you get period doubling ideas. You know, it's really a whole string of wonderful, uh, wonderful papers. So I, I encourage you to, if you're interested in oscillations, to look at uh, look at Jeff Hasty's work uh, over the years. Um, and uh, right, so so um, and you know, and if you if you want a, a quick introduction to these papers, I, I also wrote a news and views in Nature on these two papers. So you can you can read that. It's only um, a page. Uh, so, um, so that's although I guess you won't hear anything that you haven't already heard probably, um, but um, yeah. Any, any other, any other questions about this idea of uh, how how we can use both positive and negative feedback in order to get some nice oscillatory properties? Um, okay, then let's um, let's move on. Uh, all right, what did you guys think of um, of this paper? Uh, the Barbasi paper. Good, bad, difficult, easy. Why, why does it have so many citations? Why does it have so many citations? All right, that's an. Yeah, no, and and you you should look at how many. I mean, according to Google Scholar, I haven't checked this year, but it's probably like 20,000 citations. I mean, it's. A cult thing or? Um, it's a cult thing. Um, well, I uh, I I don't know. That might be exaggerating. I mean, it's a
1: nice
0: Yeah, right. Um, no, anyway, all right. So this is interesting. I think that I mean, the basic answer is that uh, there are networks that are relevant in many, many, many fields, which they allude to, and um, and there are many researchers that have been excited about studying those networks in many, many fields. And uh, many, many, many of the networks that are observed in nature, social science, the web, everywhere, they have these power law structures, and uh, and and this is. Um, the 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 you know the first clear simple mechanism to generate it. I'll, my my understanding is actually that some you know that actually a mathematician decades before actually did demonstrate that this kind of thing could be constructed that would lead to this. But um, but that paper doesn't have twenty thousand citations. Right? <laughs> you know I mean like it's a lot of these things you have to be at the right time, the right place, and have the right idea. And yeah. You know, um. Yeah, I guess my my main thought about the paper is exactly that that the interesting thing about it was it was it came out of. That's right. That's what yeah, there, there's a re- there's a reason that this paper was um, published at this time, and you know, and of course, you know, if Barabasi didn't do it here, someone else would have done it a year or two later, right? But it was it was really that the, the data were available everywhere, and so then the, and we were seeing these power law distributions, and, and it's really crying out for for an explanation. Okay, I think it, it's, you know, and sometimes people complain that they say, oh yeah, you know, I could have come up with this idea. You know, it's not that deep. You know, and yeah, maybe you could have, but you know, but you didn't. You know, uh, you know, and and also I, I'd say that, you know, I, you know, Barabasi has a, has a record of doing interesting things, and being the first to point out a simple idea. You know, and and you know, and if if you can reliably be the first to point out a simple explanation for important things, then that's um, that's another kind of genius, right? I mean, you know, and it's. Um, and it's the kind of genius that I, I would you know I aspire to because I know that I'm not going to do the I'm not going to um, reach the other kind of genius right you know so you know there, I mean you know I mean there are there I mean there are some things that you know you look at and you're like oh well you know I would never be able to do that right uh, and uh, and those you know everyone agrees that that's hard but uh, but I think that there there is something about being able to see what the scientific opportunities are at a given time and you don't have to come up with a really complicated. Model or proof in order to have, have really important impact, uh, and th- yeah, and this paper is um, is you know way I mean way beyond and you know in terms of like number of people that have read it, cited it, and so forth. It's you know way beyond probably any other paper you'll likely read in your life. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yes, uh, just more thoughts. More thoughts. Yeah, that's fine. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I
1: mean, I guess what's interesting is yeah, it starts a conversation. Like we
0: can we can analyze these
1: networks
0: and this is a feature that's more conductive is So it starts by conversation. I there's yep. still a lot more that we can do with it that. I think that's why I like it. Yeah. No, I think that's that's a totally um so this is the Bar and uh Rika Albert. Um so uh um, so Bar-Bossi is a professor over at Northeastern now. Um Rika Albert is a professor at Penn State, uh, and I think they've both gone on to do what I, I, I think are really very interesting things, you know, in this network space, but you know, m- and more more generally. Uh, so I, you, I encourage you to to check out what what each of them have been doing over the years. Uh, all right, so so all right, so this is the this model. Okay, what what are the two key ingredients uh, of this model? Growth and model. All right. So all right, so the two things that you should be able to recapitulate on an exam is that there are two assumptions here. There's growth, and there's preferential attachment. Okay. And we'll, we'll talk about the degree to which we think each of those things might be necessary. But um, what's, the, uh, what's the key? Yeah, can somebody be a, a little more explicit than what we've been so far about what the key kind of observation is that we're trying to explain? perfect right observation all right all right so some nodes have lots of edges i mean it is kind of a meta irony to that this paper now is very widely cited <laughs> uh, this yes stated every time we talk about
1: the paper.
0: yes it it, you, it it indeed it is um <laughs> it is ironic and 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 we we'll, we we'll, we'll talk about how the how the scaling of the citation networks go in a moment um right so some nodes have lots of edges all right and um and then, you know you have to, you want to be very clear about this this is what the, you know you're trying to explain right so uh, it's a power law distribution right so in particular you can quantify this thing right that the probability of having k nodes or sorry the probability that a node has k edges falls off as a power law you know 1 over k to some power 2 3 4 right so the probability having k edges um, goes as 1 over K to some power alpha, right? Where alpha is kind of, you know, maybe between two and four for a lot of these. Okay. Now, it, you know, it's important to make sure that you you keep this qualitative statement in mind, though, right? Because you know, it's true that it falls off, and and you know, and sort of rapidly, right? You know, one over K squared, K cubed, or K to the fourth. You'd say, oh, that's 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 a pretty rapid fall off, right? But it's not rapid compared to what. Exponent, right? So the, for these other, you know, for these other models, then it falls off exponentially, right? So even faster, okay? Uh, so you know, key, you know, it's it's easy to kind of look at oh, 1 over k to the fourth, and think oh, that's a f- fast fall off, right? But just we have to remember that it's uh, it's slow compared to some other things, right? So um, in particular, if you look at the if you look at the data for real networks, right, you see that the probability distribution, in many cases, goes over orders of magnitude in terms of this probability, right? So you think oh, that's a big that's a big range, and it is a big range. But uh, the fact is that you actually see some nodes with 1,000 you know, edges or whatnot, right? which is something that you would just never see if it were a random network or if it were, you know, if it were not a power law distributed network. Okay? And I think that this is also highlighting another statement, which is that a powerful way to make a difference, for example, if you're going to write down a model or you're going to do theory. Is that it's nice if you start if there's a clear observation that needs to be explained, okay? Because you can always write down a model of something, and and maybe you'll find something interesting, right? Uh, but uh, a way to I think massively increase the probability that you're going to uh, discover something interesting is if there's all if you already know there's something interesting there and that you're trying to explain it, okay? And I think that this is. An example of that, right? There was already an observation; it was already known, right? It's not that he was the first person to make those plots, right? There were other plots of citation networks before, right? So, Sid Redner, for example, had already done some analyses of citation networks. Over, uh, he's a uh, theoretical statistical physicist over at uh, at BU, uh, but just now, I guess, moving uh, over to the um, Santa Fe Institute. Okay, but. So it's not that he was the first person to make that observation, but he knew that there, but the observ- you know, he knew there was something interesting that needed to be explained, right? So I, I'd say that whatever, you know, for any of you that are going to thinking about doing theory or writing down models, I, I I would say whenever possible, start start with an interesting observation. Okay? Alright, so can somebody, uh, maybe you guys could just throw out what are some examples of nodes and edges that were given there or elsewhere? All right, web pages and links. All right, and uh, is this a directed or an undirected? Uh, yeah, so this is indeed directed. Right, All right. some others. Movie stars, and movie stars and movies. Yeah, this one's a funny one, right? Okay, yeah. So movie stars, and then um, right, and this this is this is um, this is like. Being in a movie together, right? So co starring or so. All right, others? Articles and citations. Great. Articles, citations. All right, and this is again directed, and this is not directed, right? Uh, and and we can maybe even try to remind ourselves. This fell off as alpha alpha was equal to what? I guess it was three. I think they said. Um, All right, actors were around two point three. I guess they said. All right, the web was two point one. Okay. All right, so. You know, just because it's a power law doesn't mean that it's always going to have the same alpha, right? Uh, but for example, what this means is that for every paper that has, um, say, 200 citations, there are going to be roughly 10 papers that have 100 citations, right? Because so if you increase k by a factor of two, you get almost an order of magnitude in, term, in terms of the probability distribution, right? Um, All right so, so, all right, so this is an interesting observation, and, and where Barbas came in and said, All right, well, what would be a model that would recapitulate this? Okay. And, and what are the models that, uh, that did not recapitulate it? Right, so the Erdos Reni, OK, so, uh, so other, um, other models, right? There was the ER, other models. There's this so-called Erdos-Renyi network, uh, random network, okay. right? And that's uh, because the, here the the degree distribution is peaked around something and then falls off exponentially as you go above that. Uh, and this is actually where the I think the equations are wrong in terms in this in this paper, because um, you know if, if you look at the paper page five ten. Right, they say the Erdos-Reni, uh, you connect the edges with probability p. And then they say uh, you get a Poisson distribution, p of k, where, you, where lambda, the mean is something. But then they say, oh, lambda is equal to some binomial something of k and so forth. Um, so I think that this is all not true, but rather that it, um, you can approximate the binomial with a Poisson and the limit of small p's. Okay. So beware if you're um, looking at that. Um, all right. There, there was another network that uh, that. Oh, do you have a question? Uh, no, was no. all. Right. Um, all right. So we'll, you know, we'll, you know, we we're going to spend a lot of time talking about probability distributions in the coming weeks. But uh, I just wanted to highlight that there is, as far as I can tell, that that is not true. What they say. Okay. Um, all right. But there, there, there was one other uh, model for a network that they they talk about or they mention. Does anybody small world. the so-called small world network, right? Um, and this is um, small world network, and th- this is based on a paper by Strogatz uh, and w- yeah Watts and Strogatz. Okay, small world. Oh, that's Watts and Strogatz. Right, and 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 this this is this was a paper where they they demonstrated that there was a very simple mechanism, uh, just by kind of like rewiring a network that you could get this so-called small world phenomenon, right? Where uh, you know the Kevin Bacon thing, where you can take any, you can right from Kevin Bacon, and this is actually the actor network, right? So you can say starting with Kevin Bacon, can you construct um, a, a list of actors that co-starred with each person that gets you to any given actor? And the statement is you're supposed to be able to do that. From you know a path of six, right? So that you know all the actors are supposed to be connected to Kevin Bacon by six, right? Um, although maybe you guys don't even remember who Kevin Bacon is anymore. Is that what you do? Okay, all right. Um, you no, know, but th- this rule works for anybody. So just you know, in, you know, in, insert your ac- favorite actor into that sentence. Um, okay, and it's important. I just just to mention that just because something is a small world network does not mean that it's, it has power law distributions. right? It may be the case that many power law networks also have this small world character. And I'd say maybe even most of them, right? because some of those highly connected nodes are going to be useful for connecting any, anybody to anybody else. But that's not required to get the small world character. Okay. Any questions about that statement? Mm. Well, strong, I, I guess the, the strong statement is that, um, that this property does not imply that property, right? I guess, yeah. And you're not
1: saying that the uh, you know, inverse is true
0: I Yeah, you know, and that.
1: Because it seems like, it seems like you know, at least the examples we've listed ought to be
0: small. World. Yeah, no, I, I agree. I think that this small world property, that's why I was saying that it's I, okay, what I do not know is whether it would be possible to construct a, uh, a power law distributed network that does not have the small world property, but what I would say is that uh, uh, the ones that I'm aware of would have the small world property right. Okay. Any other questions about where where we are? All right So there's interesting properties of networks that we would like to explain right? And um, I would say that what uh, what this paper does I think kind of convincingly is that they demonstrate that, at least this model, and we'll get into the assumptions, does lead to a power law distributed network. Okay, um, now uh, in the um, there was uh, yeah the, the the answer to the reading questions about about whether both of these is strictly necessary I think was it was an interesting one, right? And and I, I'd say that this this gets into the wider issue of um, you know, there's an observation that is maybe interesting. Okay? And then we want to understand why that might be. And you, then, then what you can do is you can write down a model that leads to that behavior. Okay, we've already talked about this. Does that prove that the assumptions of the model are correct? No. In this case, these are pretty generic features of lots and lots of the network. So we, we tend not, so we, I'd say when you read it, you kind of believe that this is a dominant mechanism. But it, it very much does not prove that these are the only this is, you know this is not at all the only way to get a power law distributed network right and i'd say that some of the language in the paper might kind of lead you to believe that that is the case and i think that that's you know this is a standard logical fallacy that we have to be careful of and some of the, and i think that some of the language is a little bit dangerous you know so the de- development of the power law scaling in the model indicates that growth and preferential attachment play an important role in network you know i you know i, I would say that it's I think it's probably true, but you know. But once again, you know, it's a question of this is certainly not a proof that that those assumptions are relevant for any given network. Of course, in all these cases, the network does grow, and there is preferential attachment. attachment. Uh, But you know, it's also there there are other things that are also true that may be important, for example, in determining exactly what alpha is, or other things. And and I think that, uh, as indicated, there are uh, other ways of getting power-law networks without making the exact assumptions that are here. Uh, but I think it, it's uh, it's in my mind it probably you know a or d dominant mechanism for in a lot of these networks. So I, I think it's a it's a fine paper but just remember that it doesn't it doesn't prove that those are the two the only two important things, right? Um, so yes. Just about the preferential attachments, like I think you mentioned
1: that we tried different Yes. Ways,
0: and only the linear ones. Yeah, is yeah, this is, a v- which is troubling. Well, you know, yeah. Yeah, yeah no, I, I agree. I agree. Uh, right. So, uh, right. And what they what they assume in in the model here is that that the preferential attachment goes linearly with the um, the number of existing uh, edges, right? And I would say that I very much believe that preferential attachment is uh, present in all those things. But I'm sure that if you go and you measure it, you're not going to find that it's linear with the number of edges. It's going to. I mean, I, okay, I, I actually. I don't know what you'll find in each of those cases, but there's no reason to believe it has to be linear. Right? Uh, that being said, it may be the question is how strong of a deviation from linearity is there? And then how sensitive is the power law behavior to that? And, and that's the kind of thing that uh, I'm sure that, that uh, one of the 20,000 papers that have cited this paper in the last 15 years address th- this issue. right? Uh, yeah, no, but I mean, this is also why there are so many papers. I mean, it's like you read this paper, you're like, oh, you know, it would be really interesting to do this, that, you know, and 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 people have been following that interest, right? Uh, okay, let, let's go ahead and uh, I think that the derivation is is a little bit tricky, uh, so I, I think it, it's worth uh, you know just walking through it, um, especially since some people apparently couldn't even get the equations, which are going to be is going to is going to be a problem. Oh, and maybe while we're on this question of preferential attachment, um, how do you guys feel about this question of uh, networks within, say, the, trans- the transcriptional network of E. coli or other cells? I mean, do you think that these are s- these properties are are gonna, are relevant in the cell or? So what would, what would growth mean? Right. So growth would correspond to adding a new gene. Does that ever happen? Yeah. OK. And what, uh, can someone give an, uh, a possible mechanism by which a new gene is added to the genome? Duplication. Right, so for example, duplication is common, right? E.g. duplication. And so what does this mean for preferential attachment? Sorry, my phone is out. But if we uh,
1: duplicate the gene, then we'll probably also duplicate the promoter
0: region, which means yeah. the genes are still Right. So this, I think, is very interesting. Um, right, so duplication in general you'll duplicate both the coding region that makes the protein but also maybe the promoter region that specifies the regulation right So if you imagine you have some X here that is right and if we and we can remind ourselves uh, are both the incoming and outgoing edges power law distributed in transcription networks? No, I know this was in the, the this was the pre class reading, but just in case right so it the what you find is that some transcription factors regulate many genes, but we don't have any any proteins that are regulated by 200 genes, right? So in that sense, typically, right, we have things that are regulated. x there's maybe some X1, X2, X3, right? And there might be a few uh, incoming edges, right? So uh, uh, expression of a gene is, is typically specified by. A few transcription factors, right? Whereas some transcription factors might have hundred outgoing edges. Okay? So it's the outgoing edges that are power law distributed and the ingoing, you know, are closer to being kind of plus on or so. All right? So you can imagine that we have this guy might you know have hundred or so. And whereas over here, some y transcription factor that is just regulating two genes, say y1 and y2. Okay. Now Question is, if gene duplication occurs kind of randomly throughout the genome, you know, which target, or you know, which, which transcription factor, x or y is more likely to have a target that's duplicated? X. x all right. Interestingly, how does that scale with the number of targets? This actually is linear, right? So, so I'd say that the gene duplication does give growth and preferential attachment that is basically linear with a number of targets. Um, it's interesting, I, I'd say I find this kind of observation quite interesting and compelling and makes me feel kind of comfortable about this as a mechanism for uh, some of the global properties. You know I mean, this, of course, there's, there's no selection. There's no way to explain, you know, the interesting network motifs and so forth here. But I'd say just in terms of some general properties, I think it's it's interesting. Of course, once again, not a proof. Evolution can do whatever it wants with these gene duplication events. Um, but you know, so I would say, you know, not everybody finds this argument very uh, very compelling. But I'd say I think it's kind of yeah, I get a warm fuzzy feeling inside. Yeah. Yeah. So well, about how that I, you know, you can lose. You can lose web pages. You can. You can.
1: Are you losing
0: them nearly as fast as your adding them? Like, Um. Yeah. I. I don't know. Um. I find that you know. You know. Lots of links to my web pages just disappear over time, and I don't know. Uh, yeah. I. I. No, it's, it's a reasonable question. I. Um. I don't. Right, you know, in some of these you'd say, oh well, right. So the the web has been growing a lot recently, and 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 so then we'd say that birth dominates over death there. Whereas if you talk about genome sizes along different lineages, it certainly is not growing exponentially the way the web. Yeah, I think that that's fair and true, Um, but we we haven't really actually specified or made clear within a model what happens if you allow for birth and death, right? Um, But I think that uh, you you could introduce death and, and recapitulating these behaviors. So it's not. I think that it's. Just because some nodes disappear doesn't mean that the whole. We have to throw the whole idea out the window. But um, but you know, evolution. You know, in the presence of evolution, this is all very complicated, right? So I, you know, you can't carry this argument too far. But. Um, okay.
1: So it's only linear if each gene has one promoter.
0: If, well, I, what we're spec- assuming is that right there's some you know some segment of DNA that's in front of the gene that specif- gives instructions of when to make when to, when to transcribe the, the gene. right So the linearity is just assuming that that's really just assuming that genes have kind of the same rate of being duplicated on average, you know, and this is a very global property, so I, I think that it's you know it's kind of roughly. It's a, it's a, it's. I would say it's it's the null model that you would use if you're going if you had to write down a null model. Yeah. Yeah, yeah that's an interesting question. Uh, you know, and it's hard to know what it would even mean to quite be evidence to support it in the sense that uh, you're you're saying along different evolutionary lineages could we. Um, say that it's more likely to grow. You know, of course, the other thing to say is that the, the rate of, of death would also scale linearly. <laughs> I mean, in the sense that a gene being uh, stochastically um, removed from the genome should also scale linearly, right? So it's not that um, you don't actually then expect there to be any um, systematic change. I mean, it's not as simple as just saying, oh, the, the, the number of targets of um, a transcription factor with many targets should grow faster. And you know, it's really that the expectation is it should be changing faster because, they're, because both duplication and removal would both be increasing. So it, I think the signature is not totally obvious in that sense. No. All right, so how, how many people actually tried to piece, the, uh, piece this derivation apart? Anybody? All right. And did were you happy with it at the end of your ruminations? i, think so. rumination? I think near the very end that I was a little bit. Different. Okay. Yeah, I know. It kind of, you know, there is like a crux of the climb at the end. All right. Um, okay, so um, all right, let's just make sure that we um, c- you know, we can understand kind of what happened there cuz it's it's worth, you know, since we read the paper, it's worth trying to figure it out. All right? Um, okay, so so what we're going to assume is that we start with uh, m not uh, nodes, okay. So they're going to be here, and the idea is it doesn't really matter how we start this thing. They might start out being unconnected, or they might be connected. You know, in, in over time, you know, the signature of how we start is not supposed to be that important, right? Uh, and then what we're going to do is, um, at each time point, we're going to add one more node, and uh, as we do that, we're going to add uh, m edges as well. Okay. Right. So we can uh, we then have the number of uh, we'll say nodes, n uh, as a function of time, is going to be equal to what? Yeah. All right. And this is just going to be we're going to start at m not, and it's going to be we're going to add one each time. m not plus t. Number of edges is just going to be equal to the number that we add each time point times times the time. Okay? Right. So here we're assuming that we start out with these nodes being unconnected. Now uh, we're, we're given the assumption that there's preferential attachment, right? So that means that the probability of connecting to uh, this to some i-th node that has K edges is going to be k to the I divided by the sum over um, all of, um, all of the edges. Yes All right, so the assumption is that uh, at each time point, we add a new node, let's say this node, and with that we bring in some number m of new edges. Right, so this could be three, and then we go randomly to three of the existing, uh, three of the existing nodes. All right. so each time point we add m edges. Do
1: you, add, do you
0: necessarily add them to the new node, like do you necessarily connect them to the <coughs> node that you add? Um, I'm sorry, I don't understand. Oh yeah, yeah, right. So the assumption is that. Um, is that the new the new node is indeed being connected to uh, right? That all m edges that we're adding are to this new node. Yeah. Okay. All right. So this is the linear preferential attachment that we were talking about. So what we want to know first is how, after a node is is connected, how is it that the number of edges will grow over time? All right. What we know is that at when it's first added, it has exactly m uh, m edges. Right. So, but then, but then as new nodes come, then we'll maybe get some more, and then it'll it'll grow. Okay. And in particular, we want to get. Um, you know we're told that there's that it's going to grow as this differential equation. Okay, so we want we want to kind of get to this, right? And and the, the way to think about this is that all right, well, how is it that the number of edges will change at each time point? Some delta ki, right? Well, the expected number of of edges that will be attached to some uh, to some node. Well, that's going to be uh, m. This is the number of uh, the number of edges that were attached by this incoming node, and times this probability of attaching to this um, to this node. Right. So this is the probability of ki. Right. Now this is in one time step. Right. So this is really a delta ki. If we want, we could say a, over some delta t, which is one. Right. So from that standpoint, we can actually then write it as a differential equation where you say oh, the, the change in this number of edges with respect to time is indeed going to be equal to m times this guy here, which is the number of edges that that, that node has at this time, divided by this sum over all those edges. All right, so this is just the kind of the expected number of edges to be added to that node at each time point. Okay. All right. So, but what what is this thing uh what is that thing equal to? Yes. Did you. Sort of the, or, or the equation? It seemed like you just wrote the same equation from the, the line above. Just it I did. Okay. So we bought the yeah, line? no. Yeah. So, this, so this is kind of the discrete version of the differential of this differential equation, oh, right? That. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah. Um, and of course, uh, the beginning could be highly stochastic, right? But we're just we're just thinking about it in the limit of if if it's uh, deterministic, right? Um, right. So, what is this thing in terms? I mean, so from here, this was just a normalization constant, right? Because you know each. Edge has to be attached somewhere. We're assuming it's linear with respect to the number of edges at each node, right? And that means that for normalization, we have to divide by the sum over all those edges, right? The, the edges that each of the, each of the nodes might have. But how, what is this thing equal to in terms of something else that we might have on the board? Yeah? have edges with respect to Right. OK, so I guess the question is well, is this, can we write this? You know, e where e is a function of time. Is, is, is that correct? So we're getting some shakes. Isn't it, uh, two e? Right. So it's actually two e. Right. Because what you notice here is that this is the sum over all of the edges that each of the nodes have. Right. But each edge is connecting two nodes. Right. So the sum over all these edge distributions is twice the number of edges. Okay. Now, I would say, as a physicist, you know, working in biology, my general attitude is that a factor of two here, a factor of two there, doesn't really matter, right? Um, but th- this factor of two actually is relevant because it ends up determining the scaling over time, right? So, um, so this is, you know, you know, not all factors of two are created equal, and this this is one that is worth that is worth paying attention to. Okay. All right. Does everybody understand why there's why this is two times the number of edges, right? Right, right, k1 is equal to 1, k2 is equal to 1, number of edges is equal to 1. Yeah? So that
1: means we're in an undirected network. If we were in a directed network, then we
0: would not have that factor of 2. Yes, so we are indeed in an undirected. And I'd say in a directed network, you have to then be more careful about what you, I mean, you have to specify. The k's in and k's out. So actually, already, just by writing this, we've already assumed it's undirected because we haven't specified what we mean by k. Yeah. Um, okay. All right, uh, We're here, but you know, very conveniently, we already know how, how many edges there are as a function of time. All right? This is just equal to m times t. All right, so we get something that's very convenient, ki divided by 2t. Right, from here we can, uh, you know, we can solve the differential equation, right? So this is what we were, what we wanted to show, right? So uh, the fact that we're doing partials doesn't really matter because it's just time here, right? So it's really so we have d k i over k i is equal to d t over two uh, t, right? So this two really again is going to make a difference because. You know, when, we're, when we go and we integrate, we get the logs and so forth. right? And so we get that ki as a function of time is going to grow with time with some constant c proportionality to the square root of time. Right? So if we didn't have the half, it would just be linear with time. Okay? Now, uh, how, how do we know what c? In general, how, how do we get constants of integration in life? Yeah, boundary conditions, in this case the initial condition. What is it that we know? Right, so what we know is that ki, so this ith node, when it's added at time ti, it should be equal to what? Okay. Yeah, it's equal to m. So when it's first added at some time ti, its number of edges equal to m, because that's, that's what we've assumed is that we add, a, we add a node and we connect it randomly to m other things, so it, it has m edges initially. Right? So from this, k of t, this is then equal to m times the square root of t divided by t initial, right? where ti is the time that the ith node was added to the network. Okay? Are there any questions about how we got there? All right, um, so I think that this is relatively straightforward. I think the, the part that gets confusing are, is the, this, la- this later part about the probabilities and kind of keeping, keeping everything straight. All right. So uh, the, the, what, what Barabasi did next is he said, all right, well, what we're going to do is we're going to talk about the probability p. Right? Now, this is an actual, honest-to-goodness probability. Okay. The big P is actually a probability. And that's as compared to a probability distribution, little p. And I'll put in a little curly here thing. So that's a little p. All right. This is saying, if you want to get an actual probability here, then you have to multiply that probability distribution times some range delta k. All right. So if you want to know that the probability that some node has between some number and some number of, of edges, then you multiply it by that, that range. Right. Probability distribution. This is an actual probability. right? And, and as befits an actual probability, we're going to say, OK, the probability that the ith, the i-th node has k edges that are less than some value k. And remember, this thing is actually a function of time. Okay. But We have an expression for ki as a function of time. It's equal to this. Okay, so we can kind of we can solve. And we can show that this probability is also the same as this other probability, that that the, no, the i-th node was added after some time t that is can be written as this. Okay, so this is saying the probability that some random, say i-th node, has fewer than k edges is the same as saying that the it's the probability that the ith node was added after some time t, which is which is this thing. Okay, because the number of edges will grow over time for each of the, each of these nodes. Okay. Do you guys do you understand the the kind of conceptual statement that was made there? Yes. Any any questions? All right, so the probability that this i node was added after this time is also of course 1 minus uh, the probability that it was added before that time, right? Where right. whereas time little t here, this is at the time that you're actually looking, right? So this is saying, "Oh, well, if little t is 100, for example, let's say oh, at, at that time point, after we've added 100 nodes, right? we want to say, all right, what's the probability that some random i-th node was added before this quantity? And this is just, again, some other kind of time, if you'd like. OK, okay and I think this is the part that is especially kind of weird. All right, so this is also equal to this thing. Uh, and I think you know, reasonable people can argue about exactly what you should write here. Uh, but we, we, let's figure out the basic argument first. All right. So there's a, this probability is equal to this thing. Okay. So the, the statement is really that at some time, some time t, we have how many nodes? We have we have m not plus t nodes, right? So this is this is something here. And of course, there are edges going around, doing things. right? And what we want to know is, what's the probability if I grab one of them? You know, and we're going to call that the ith node. Okay? So what's the probability if I grab one of them that it was added before some time here? Okay? And, and it's useful to just imagine this as just being some time t, which will you know, just, just so that we don't get confused by all the symbols. right? And you say, oh, well, that, prob- the, that probability is really just the probability. Well, how, ma- how, many nodes were, how many nodes total do we have? We have m0 plus t. How many nodes were there that were added before this time t? Well, that's going to be t. If you want, you might want to say t plus m0. There's a question of whether you include those nodes that started there or not. right? Um, given the equations that Barabasi wrote down, he kind of assumes that we're only counting the nodes that were added later. right? But, you know, so, that, so I'd say if you want, you could either add an m0 up there or get rid of this m0, depending on what you like, right? But broadly, there's this idea that we have this many nodes, and this many of them were added before some time t. And that's how we get this m squared t over k squared, which is just that time t divided by the total number of, of nodes. And this whole discussion about whether you count the initial m not nodes or not—it doesn't matter because we're going to be taking the limit as t goes to infinity, and that all goes away. All right. Are there are there questions about this? This. There there, there are there something kind of mind twisting about this argument, even though we're really just picking big t objects out of essentially little t objects right but somehow that something funny goes on there right. any questions about about that um could you just go through the argument one more time? Yeah 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 sure sure um, right so i think that what's confusing about it is is the fact that we're asking whether this whether the ith node. Was added before some time t, and 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 this time t is equal to something that's funny based on this other the, what we've just done. But I think it's useful to just ask if if at time little t you have you know you look at you look at this network, and I ask you, all right, well, was it added before this time big t? I.e., let's just for concreteness say you know m not is equal to we start with 10 nodes. And we say, okay, at time t equal to 100, I want to. I ask you, what's the probability that I grab, if I grab a random node, what's the probability it was added before some time big T equal to 10? Okay. Well, you would say, um, you know, very roughly, actually, you know, we can say. Let's let's actually, we can even just, for, if we'd like, say we're not going to count. We're not going to we're not going to count those M not initial nodes. So we're just going to be looking at nodes we added later if you'd like, right? And then, and then you would say, "All right, well, at time T, well 100 we've added 100 nodes, right? And I'm asking you, what's the if I grab one of the nodes, what's the probability that I that the node I grab was added in the first 10 time steps?" Right? Well, you would say it's going to be 10%, right? Because there were 10 nodes that were added before time big T and we added 100. So it's really just this divided by this, and you know, with the question of whether you want to include m naughts or not, right? So I think that that argument is surprisingly straightforward. But then somehow what gets really confusing is that you know the time t we're referring to, it, it, it's depending on the the k's and the t's and so forth, right? But that's that's a way of keeping track of how how everything is scaling as a function of time, right? But if you just if you boil the argument down to this, then it it makes sense but then of course then you look back at this and you get confused again right uh, which is um, how i feel every year when i prepare this lecture <laughs> but but i think it, but it's all i think it's all it all does make sense if you um, okay. Did, Any questions about this argument or that argument or any part of it? Um, yes. So is TI the, T I the or is TI? Yes. Yeah, so, all right so Right, so okay, so this is T I, this is just saying that if I pick some random node, we're we're calling it the i node, I'm asking what's the probability that that the time it was added was before something. Right? So this is just this is not one of the variables. And you'll not, see the TI doesn't appear down here. Because this is just saying, because I'm just I'm I'm asking you, if I grab some random node, the i node, I'm asking you what's the probability that it was added before some other time, which is which is all this. Right. So and what you can see is that it, it's a function of, of you know the time that we look, right? Because if if I go to longer times, you know, then indeed this probability should it go. What should it do? Okay, but it depends on k's as well, right? What do I want to say? Right, because ultimately what what we what we see here is that as 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 time goes to infinity, so as after a long time, then we reach this stationary distribution where uh, the, the base structure of the network is not changing anymore. Right? And that's because the there's a t in both the numerator and the denominator. So then the only thing that kind of is left is this behavior as a function of k. Right. So this is and this is really saying that you know the probability that some node was added before some time is is kind of the same as saying that well <laughs> that you have a lot of edges right? and that's how we got here to begin with right because the the nodes that were added early end up with a lot of edges this is the so-called rich get richer phenomenon right so if you're sitting on a manuscript and you're not submitting it for publication you should kind of get on it because you know the earlier that it's published the more citations it's going to get okay uh, right but this is saying that right, the probability that some random node has a small number of edges is the same as that the probability that the node was added late. Right? And that makes sense, because if it's added late, it doesn't have very many edges, hasn't had time to grow. Right? And then you know, it just, you know, from the, those, uh, those calculations, you can get it at this degree distribution. Yes. So
1: in this analytical analysis we're assuming that the links could
0: be non integral Yeah, okay, right. So uh, Yes. So we're we're taking in principle it's a discrete problem and converting it into a into a differential equation, right? Um, you know, and it's an interesting question of, of I don't know how big of an error this ends up making, right? Uh, and and of course this expression doesn't actually end up being integer, you know, having integers, right? But this is a, this is a way of making it so that the errors don't grow or so, right? Um, you know, so I think that it, it, you know, it basically works. I think, and you, if you'd like, you could, you know, you can sit down, and actually, do the simulation with all the discrete. I think that it's actually going to be the stochastic dynamics that end up being more relevant than the the integer kind of issue, uh, but I, I haven't actually looked into that though. All um, right, any other questions about about that so far uh, yes so we not counting the case when we right so there's no loss of edges no loss of nodes strictly verboten I spent a lot of time trying to plan an upcoming trip to Germany last night so I'm, I'm German is on my mind um, All right, so are are we done yet? Incidentally, uh, nearly, right? Because we have um, now this, but, but what we really wanted is the is the degree distribution, not this probability, right? So we have to take a derivative still, All right, But as as t goes to infinity, regardless of how you treat the m um, knots, oh, actually, well, we maybe oh, well, sorry, maybe we'll take take the derivative first. Okay, so the this probability density, right? Is going to be uh, the derivative with respect to k of the actual probability here. All right, so we take a derivative. This one derivative, nothing happens. K squared, it's going to turn into a k, a k cubed, right? So we get two m squared t over k cubed. We still have the m, t plus m naught, But when we uh, when we let t go to infinity, so after this thing has reached its stationary distribution, then we end up just getting two m squared over k cubed, right? I just want to be clear. This is to the k, right? And the key feature here is that. Um, The probability distribution goes as um, one over k cubed. Um, What is interesting is that, you know, when I first read the paper, I actually thought that this exponent here would be a function of the linearity of the preferential attachment. So I actually, you know, and of course they say that it's not true, right? But when I was halfway through the paper, I thought, oh well. If you just let this go as some power to the beta or so then you would maybe get something like oh this was you know 2 plus beta I, you know I thought something like that uh, but apparently it's not true right that uh, if you uh, if you do not have linear attachment here then you just don't get power law distributions right They suggest other ways that you could maybe get different exponents, which is very relevant given the fact that different real networks indeed have different exponents right um, But I'd say that they' they're Proffered explanation, which is to include directed edges, feels uh, unsatisfying because not all networks are directed, right? Uh, and this network here is not directed and has a different has an exponent that's closer to two, right? So you would you really want to have other, other mechanisms? Uh, but you know this, as we've mentioned, is it's a thriving field, and and, uh, and people have explored many different aspects of this problem. Are there any, any other questions about this derivation? How we got there? How convincing we maybe you think it should be or not be? Okay. So I want, I want us to spend the, the last five minutes of the class kind of setting up the discussion of uh, how we should be searching for network motifs. Okay. In particular, there's a natural question, which is uh, we have to decide what the right null model is in terms of deciding. Uh, kind of what the expected frequency of a network motif, like a feed forward loop, might be. So first of all, why is it that we think that, you know, why why is it that we we maybe should not use an Erdos-Renyi network? Yes?
1: Doesn't,
0: it's not very good for handling Right. OK, so you say, oh, not very good. I mean, I can maybe make I, mean, I can. There's a clear analog to a, a you know, you can take a, a random undirected ER network and, and say, you know, to, you know, put arrows randomly on each edge. You know, I mean, I, I think that there's, there's a natural ER version of a directed network.
1: There are
0: constraints. Like what?
1: Like- Would be you don't assign the edge.
0: Right. That's right. OK, so one thing is that it may be that, that biologically there are constraints. Um, but, you know, and then, but that should manifest itself somehow in the sense that if you know, all that may be well and good, it may be true, what you're saying. But if we go and we look at a transcription network, if it looks like an ER network, then I would say it just doesn't matter. right? You know, the fact that, that there's microscopic Things going on. I mean, if at the end of the day it looks like an ER network, then then maybe then maybe it's fine, anyways, right? Okay. Or maybe not. You know, I, I, yeah, you can argue so either way.
1: If, right? if, if a particular, I mean, it depends on what you want. If a particular motif occurs a lot, it might be because of the, you know, it might be because it's selected for evolutionarily, or maybe for some other reason.
0: That's right. Okay, so this is an important point that you know that. Right. I would say that in, in Uri's approach, he basically says, if, if we see a network motif more frequently than we would expect based on some null model, some null network, then, uh, then it's kind of prima facie evidence that maybe evolution was selecting for it for some reason. Right? And what you're saying is that it could be that, that uh, there's a microscopic mechanism that just leads to those things happening. And it, so it doesn't have to be selection. It could be just due to the, the mechanistic processes below. And I think that's a that's a fair concern, and it's related to a lot of these other things. In that, uh, just for example, duplication will naturally lead to something. I mean, if you start out with X regulating Y, and Y is duplicated, then now you have X regulating some Y one and also some Y two. Right, and this is the beginnings of a network motif. Right, um, and and so it's a reasonable it's a reasonable thing to worry about, but maybe we can correct for at least a majority of this by using the proper null model. At least that would be the hope. Well,
1: right. But that's why you don't want, necessarily. OK, that's why you don't.
0: Yeah, yeah. Okay, OK, that's fair. But then the question is, what null model should we be using? Yeah.
1: So I feel like having the microscopic constraints does not necessarily need to be in the null model. I feel like we can have a null model without using the microscopic constraints and then just say, oh, well, that's another possibility for why we might have these yeah. divergences." Yeah. I, I don't think they need to be in the null model.
0: Yeah, it's just that then you can't say anything about evolution. Well,
1: fair, but I don't think you should have to be able. I don't think yeah. you have to say something about evolution yeah. afterwards, necessarily.
0: Yeah, and I think that this question about how strongly you can argue that evolution is selected for something, um, this is a little bit of a judgment call. All right, because most of these evolutionary arguments are not ironclad. You know, it's more a matter of making you feel, yeah, kind of comfortable with looking for what the evolutionary explanation might have been. You know, and that, this is just, I mean, the nature of looking at, I mean, of historical science, right? Um, I mean, you can speculate about what would have happened if Napoleon had done something else or whatever, right? But uh, you know, it's a, it's a you know, speculation. I mean, of course, you know, the hope is that we can collect multiple pieces of evidence that make us more and more comfortable with it. In some cases, we can do laboratory evolution to get more comfort. Right? But you know, laboratory evolution doesn't prove that that's what happened you know, a million years ago either. Right? But I'd say it's, it's more the accumulation of evidence to make you feel comfortable with an argument. Um, but we'll, you know, let's first maybe make sure we understand what the null model is, and then we can maybe, and then you know, and then on Thursday, we'll decide whether, well, decide, and we'll, we'll, we'll discuss what we think that means about evolution. You know.
1: part in the that we read about the in and out
0: distributions yeah. is important for the null model. Yes. But it seems to me that
1: uh, the spreading network might be a good model for the in distributions, but not for the out distributions.
0: That's right. So, Yeah, okay, so yeah and I think this is, this is really important. I think that it, it's clear that the, the, the actual transcription network of E. coli, for example, is not well described as an Erdos-Renyi kind of random network, uh, but then it kind of does beg the question of of what should we be using? And you could say, well, we just we just make a power law network, but then you say, oh, but there's the in degree and the out degree. You know, how much do you want to keep track of that? And I think that there's a, a fairly strong argument that what you should do is what they call this degree preserving network. And in particular, what that means is that. You take all of you take the real network, right? So you take the actual network that you're going to be analyzing, and there there is some actual degree distribution, right? So there's you know one node has you know so k1 might be 106, k2 might be 73, dot 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 you know up to kn which is equal to one, and of course I'm not even talking about it being directed, but you can do the same thing with directed. Right? Um, but then what you do is you kind of mix things up. So you start with the real network, and then you do something to randomize it. Right? And, and it's a rather clever scheme. I'm just going to describe it briefly here, and then we'll talk more about it on Thursday. What you do is you take all of the actual, uh, so let's say we have some x1, some x2, and some here, we have a y1, a y2, uh, y3. okay. Now, let's say that these guys are regulating something like this. What you do is you take two edges randomly. Well, claim we claim pick this one, and that one. What we do is we swap the um, the targets. Okay. So what we do is we make this guy come over here, and then this one comes over here. Okay. So now what we do is we erase this. And we erase this. Now we have a new network. But intriguingly, the degree distributions for both incoming and outgoing edges are identical to what we had before this. Right? You know, every guy has the same outgoing edges, incoming edges, but they're just they have different targets. Right? So if you just do this procedure many, many times, then what you do is you achieve some randomized version of the real network. Okay? And then what you can do is you can ask you can ask how many feed-forward loops are there. How many, you know, this, that, right? And so I think that th- there's a, a fair argument that this is, in some ways, the proper null model to be asking the question. And indeed, for example, there are many more feed-forward loops than there would be in an Erdos-Reni. But still, what you see is that you lose many feed-forward loops. So this is, this is then, the argument for, um, for feed-forward loops being selected for. All right, we'll talk about this, and we'll quantify it on Thursday. Uh, but I'm available for the next half hour if anybody has any questions, all right?